S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, episode 17 with host Ron Nesson, originally aired on April 17th, 1976. Greetings, it's Keith here, and with me as always is Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. And joining us for the first and hopefully not last time is a tremendous fellow who uh, has worked with us a number of times on different projects. It's my longtime close personal friend, Mark. How are you, buddy? Yeah, doing great, Keith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in on this episode. Um, were you familiar with Ron Nesson before I uh, dropped the name and the request the other night? Oh, yeah. I had uh, I grew up, you know, being a big fan of press secretaries when I was a teenager growing up in Cape Breton. So I had like posters of him all over the place. Uh, yeah, I had no clue how to do a little yeah. bit of reading. Uh, they definitely let you know through the episode who he was, though. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask if you still have that Ari Fleischer tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that lasered off, unfortunately, uh, for, for a job I had. So I'll just give you a little background on Ron Nesson here. He was born in Washington, D.C. in 1934. He was a print, radio, and television reporter for NBC News, where he covered politics. And then he became a war correspondent, spending five tours in Vietnam. He was injured there by an exploding grenade when he was traveling with the 101st Airborne. How did he wind up on the show? Well, he met Al Franken, uh, writer Al Franken, in New Hampshire during the uh, during Ford's primary campaigns. Franken, without any authorization, invited Gerald Ford to appear on the show. Ford wasn't interested, but uh, Nesson was, and he got permission to, uh, to appear. Naturally, some of uh, Republican Gerald Ford's staff was not happy about this, but uh, but Nesson uh, went ahead and did it anyway. Just a little trivia note: uh, Ron Nesson is the first person to appear on the show, excluding uh, some some pre tapes, um, of a person who had previously been parodied. And Buck Henry in episode ten played Ron Nesson. Nesson sort of starts a trend here. He's an early politico who's appearing on Saturday Night Live to uh, to appeal to the kids. How historic is that? It's historic, and uh, historically, I don't like it. I don't like when politicians of any particular leaning, whatever, I don't think they make good hosts. I find the episodes always awkward and just reliant on the cast and just nine times out of 10, I think they don't work. Mm. Yeah, I can, uh, I can feel you there, Matt. Um, having, having the politicians come in just to sort of be cool for the kids, you know, like show that they're hip and they're with it. And uh, yeah, it usually tends to fall flat and you, you can feel the rest of the cast like trying to work overtime to carry the weight. But uh, also, I believe historically this didn't work out so well for Ford. I think he lost the election, didn't he? Shortly Spoiler. following this. Oh, my <laughs> bad. Sorry. All right. So kicking it off with the cold open, we have the return of the dead string quartet. However, uh, John Belushi's in the place of Dan Aykroyd. They do the exact same shtick from the previous episode, but it's still awfully funny. Noticeably to me was the bit where Belushi's bow slowly scrapes off Lorraine Newman's strings. Yeah, they basically, the dead bodies slowly dom fall over and domino each other over until Chevy falls off the stage. Now, we're all expecting Chevy to poke his head up and say live from New York, but instead it cuts to a pre-tape with some old dude who awkwardly says live from New York. That old dude is none other than Ron Nesson's boss, President Gerald R. Ford. It's a big get for them for their first season, right? Like, it's it's a cultural institution now. So Absolutely. I guess it's, we're kind of used to seeing political figures going on there to score points. But that must have been a huge deal back then. That was not the norm, no. Hmm. I hated it. I thought it was pandering. I thought it was really shitty. I, yeah. hated, I hated this cold open, and I hated a pre-clip of this president like how long it's, it hasn't been that long since the fall of Saigon lay low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like the skit itself uh, was, was all right. Um, I, I also laughed when Belushi's uh, a bow caught Larry Newman's string and they, they did commit to it. It does feel like the kind of skit that works a lot better live. Yeah. Know, the, the, the commitment to the bit, but then, yeah, it, it felt awkward 
just like sort of ham-fistedly cutting to the president like that. But also uh, at the time, I'm sure it would have been kind of semi-shocking, exciting, and maybe a little bit of a betrayal for some of their fans. Yeah. If I'm if I'm like a, a, a you know f the man type of fella staying up late on my Saturday night hooting on some reefer sticks, I don't <laughs> think I want to see the man creeping his way into my late night supposedly possibly subversive TV. Great point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's something that I, I I like to hammer frequently whenever I can. Saturday Night Live is or NBC Saturday Night. It's supposed to be a cool show. It's marketed as a cool show. And you're right, the audience, if you you look back and, you know, like celebrities of today will remember fondly, like, oh, yeah, we stayed up all night and just toughed it out to watch Saturday Night Live. They don't want to see the president. You know, I, I don't know. I, I Part of me wonders if, if you're a fan of the show to see that as a big get for the show. You're like, holy shit, the show I love was able to get the president. Like, the president didn't do that at the time. I don't know if this would have been seen as a victory or a betrayal. It's, it's, I think it's, what it does illustrate is that the show does not know what its identity is. It wants to be something, and it's not being it. And I would make that criticism about the show today in 2021, but uh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll save that for seven years. When we get <laughs> yeah, it, it, it definitely meanders along its way and, and becomes different things at different points in its run. Mm-hmm. But you, you could definitely feel that it, it doesn't know what it is yet. I'm sure you guys are, are soaked in it since you've, you've been at this for a while now. But yeah, it, it I think it, it would split the audience. Like some people would see it as a get and other people would, who are tuning in to watch Chevy Chase make fun of the, the doofus in chief because you don't like the, the the government and all that. And you're like, wait a minute. Isn't this show supposed to be sticking it to the man, not hanging out and chumming it up with him? What a beacon of charisma, too, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so Lauren Michaels actually went to Washington to record that. It took two or three takes. And the part of the story I really like was Lauren Michaels said, you know, if this works out for you, gosh knows what's next, Mr. President. Ford, <laughs> Ford, Ford didn't get it. so. <laughs> so then we go to our opening we go through the uh the regular the, the 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 new pictures of the cast and uh and all that stuff now i've seen the picture of chevy chase probably about a thousand times do you guys know the one i'm thinking the picturing uh at the beginning of chevy holding something yeah i think so it's not coming to mind no it's just a picture of him holding something and all this time i thought he was holding an accordion but he's actually holding a typewriter like it's an accordion um, so this is the first time I've ever noticed that it's a typewriter and not an accordion. So attention to detail. <laughs> <laughs> so then we cut to another quick pre-tape where, and I thought this was a kind of a nice touch, to be honest. Uh, Gerald Ford introduces Ron Nesson, um, considering that Nesson spent the vast majority of his career saying, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. I think it was kind of cool that Ford said, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, press secretary. Uh, Ron Nesson. That, that uh, felt like a touch of class to me, actually. Yeah. No, I'll agree with you there. No, hated it. Really <laughs> stupid. Really do not like this involvement from the president. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll have more to say as we go on. But I, I, I mean, I get it. Like, oh, wow, the president is on this silly comedy show. It's like Nixon and laughing again, even though he wasn't the president. Blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. I think it, it just reeks of pandering. I really hmm. don't like it. As, as an entertainment product, I didn't care for this little introduction, but as a personal relationship to the guy he's introducing, especially not having any background on, on who Nesson is, to, for the president to like just pop in and be like, by the way, here's my buddy, that, yeah. that seemed kind of classy and, and nice to me. But just I mean, like, person. do this at the fucking press corps dinner. You don't need to do this on Saturday Night Live. There's, there's other opportunities for these guys to glad hand each other. Gosh, I don't mm. like this. Yeah, I can see why they did it, but why Saturday Night Live let it happen. I, I guess I could see that too, but it, it does feel pandry on both sides. So anyway, we go to the monologue. And before Ron Nesson even speaks and saying, this dude is going to be nervous and awkward, and he certainly was. Um, so Nesson draws comparisons between the job of the host and the job of press secretary. Takes a couple of lighthearted jabs at the president until Neil Levy, uh, appearing as an NBC page, brings out a phone call from the president to say the president is watching from home. And while the first lady thinks it's funny, the president has decided to fire Nesson. Uh, this monologue, nothing to write home about really, to be perfectly honest. Uh, Just mercifully short. Like I was appreciative when it ended. I, I felt 
relief that they didn't just keep pushing some shitty jokes on him or having him read cue cards. Wise decision not to leave him out there. Yeah, the, the brevity was welcome. Uh, there, there was a moment where he got his first laugh, where he lit up. The you know head of the chess club got to hang out with the, the football team for a minute, and they laughed at one of his jokes, and he was just the happiest boy in the world for one minute. That was that was cute. <laughs> but otherwise, as far as entertainment value, I was you know I was thinking about grabbing a snack or something. Well, things change gears as we go to the Super Bassomatic seventy six, and this is Dan Aykroyd's most memorable ad. It's a parody of the. Ron Popeil KTEL ads that were popping up everywhere, uh, most notably the Vegematic. In this case, it's a blender designed for bass. He blends up a bass, pours it into a glass, and Lorraine Newman says, Wow, that's terrific bass. The audience absolutely loved this, as did I. Great idea, fantastic delivery. The uh, audience was super into it. Um, how's uh, Super Bassomatic working for you? He asked them knowingly. Well, the uh, I mean, this, this is one of the first like quote unquote classic SNL highlight reel skits that I ever saw. I, I think I saw this at some point in the eighties on some greatest hits show. And I mean, just rightfully so I'm sure everything to say about it has been said, but Dan Aykroyd is just, this is, this is perfect for him. I'd be interested to know if he wrote it, but my goodness, the the character, the joke, the absurdity, I mean, it's just perfect. It, it's a classic for a reason. It's a perfectly timed sketch, in my opinion, too. Uh, it's almost like they knew that they were going to have to come out of a little bit of a, a dead fish monologue. And so they're like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's just jam a giant rail of coke into Dan Aykroyd and get him out there, you know? <laughs> and uh, he, he hit it like a ton of bricks. And, and yeah, this is not my first time seeing this sketch. This this would have been floating around on one of those the, the greatest hits episodes that I, I would have seen on like the comedy network or whatever back when I was a teenager. And yeah, he fantastic execution. Um, don't know if he wrote it, but it was clearly written for him. Just mm -hmm. as a personal aside, my favorite part is when he says the whole bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, Aykroyd wasn't a Coke guy because he obviously didn't need it. Yeah, this is great. Uh, what, a, what a great piece. I've been tracking sketches as we go. The Rolling Stone list I have that lists the 100 be best sketches on Saturday Night Live history. This one comes in at number 14. It sounds pretty right to me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And Mark, uh, you probably haven't seen as much as Matt and I, but 14 sound about right? I've I've been in and out of the SNL. I, mm -hmm. I was pretty hard on it through the 90s, uh, late 90s, and then a little bit again in the 2000s. Uh, but yeah, I I could see that that being an appropriate number for it. And according to some reports I got uh, reading up is this is actually kind of the point in time where Saturday Night Live fans went, holy shit, this Ackroyd guy is pretty damn good. He could clearly carry it, you know, yeah. and like it's 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 short, it's sweet and like not a second is wasted. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Excellent execution. So our next one is uh, from the Oval Office. Chevy Chase as Gerald Ford putts a golf ball with a tennis racket. This is the sketch. It sort of explains or dramatizes, I suppose, Nesson's justification for appearing on the show. We get a lot of physical stuff from Chevy depicting Ford as the complete baboon. Yeah, so I mean, this is quite similar. This is quite similar to a sketch we saw before in episode 10 with Buck Henry playing Ron Nesson. This was not great. It just seems to me like the thing they had to have on the show. I don't know how you guys feel, but uh, this wasn't great for me. Just really bad. I mean, it's I'm I'm beat. I'm going to end up beating on the same point. This guy just shouldn't be here. I don't like like these these aren't jokes. This is just or it's not a joke we haven't heard fucking a thousand times now by this point in the season. Uh, I get it. They think Gerald Ford is stupid, and now you have this guy to kind of wink at the camera, like yeah, yeah, I get to actually spend time with him. It's terrible. Uh, I really hate it. A little long and one note, you know, if, if it was, there was a couple of points I chuckled at. Uh, I think there's, there's one thing to be self-deprecating. It's another thing to actually start making you think that Gerald Ford is a dumbass. Like they might've gone too far in the other direction, you know, uh, by, by beating this to death. It felt pretty flat. Yeah. Our next bit is a sketch from Michael O'Donohue and it's a parody of the Smucker's Jam commercials. So so it starts with Jane Curtin doing a the ending of a jam ad saying with a name like Fluckers, it has to be good. And then she's joined by other members of the cast with their jams, which have disgusting names. 
Chevy Chase's is called Nose Hair. Dan Aykroyd's is called Death Camp. John Belushi's are called Dog Vomit and Monkey Pus. Chevy has another one called Painful Rectal Itch. Aykroyd has Mangled Baby Ducks. John Belushi has 10,000 nuns and, and orphans who are all eaten by rats. And then Garrett Morris comes out with a name so bad they can't say it on TV. Thought the guys were good. Thought Curtin was great. She just had this pitch woman smile the whole time. My problem with this, I really liked the whole. Uh, I really liked the whole setup. Uh, I just, I, and this is kind of nitpicky, I suppose. Uh, I thought that they really should have rearranged the orders of the jam, because quite frankly, Death Camp was the funniest jam. Save Death Camp till the end. Uh, and also, I really hate ending. Uh, on a non-joke like we don't get to know what it is or they don't even give us a hint or they don't even allude to anything risque or controversial didn't they're just like oh we can't say that and then they move on uh so i really like it and everybody did really well but that they should have had something for the end it's funny because we were talking before the show mark was saying it's hard to end a sketch yeah here we are um that's my those are my two cents yeah, it, it felt like a second draft of a skit that needed a third draft. Uh, just like structurally, it, it the, the premise is, is strong. The performances are strong. And yeah, Jane Curtin's like holding it down with that big uh, sell you some bullshit smile while all the chaos has happened with the guys coming and going was was well acted. But yeah, I just uh, I, I agree with you. Death Camp got the biggest actual laugh out of me. And, and it just felt structurally like it needed a little bit of tweaking, but it was still good. And given the, the format of the show and the fact that they're cranking, you know, all these skits out week to week, you got to give them a little room for, for not being super polished, I guess. They don't get to sit around 40 years later and pour over the minutiae. I mean, what, they probably wrote this on Thursday. If, if we're going with the minutiae, you know what kind of ticked me off was that, so we had Chevy and I think Belushi come out twice. I would have rathered if it was Gilda and Lorraine coming out and, and, and they were one-upping each other the whole way through. That, that just small point made it slightly less good for me. Yeah, that, and even structurally speaking, if you've got all of the cast members piling on and they're staying in the room, that's a, it's a way out where everyone's trying to one-up each other and then they all just end up yelling over each other at the end or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like, I, would, I would guess that somebody just didn't think that it should be women. I mean, that's that's probably what yeah. it was, right? There's already a woman on the stage. Why do we need more? Yeah, the woman is the consumer. She is the the housewife, the mom. I, it was a, a bit of a maybe an antiquated notion, but I mean, I of course I agree mm-hmm. with Keith. It would have been that, that's a cool idea. So we come to our musical guest, the Patty Smith Group. The group was formed in 1974. Uh, Smith was born in Philly in 1946 to a jazz singer and a machinist. She spent time as a busker and performance artist in France, poet and a playwright, as well as a musician. So the group came together. Their debut album, Horses, was released in 1975, and it was a mix of punk and spoken word pieces. At this point, the band was definitely on the upswing in the very popular and growing punk scene in New York City. The band at this point uh, was comprised of uh, Smith, Lenny Kay on guitar, J.D. Daughtry on drums, Richard Soule on keyboard, and Ivan Kral on bass. They performed Gloria, which is a Van Morrison song, originally performed by his band Them. Uh, I know you've you've lamented on some of the episodes I listened to previously that the, the musical guests maybe haven't been uh, fresh or hip enough, and I feel like they, they rocked it pretty good. I think it was a ballsy move, too. Um, I'm pretty sure Patti Smith reworks the lyrics to this from the Van Morrison original. It's actually a patchwork of one of her poems called Oath and the original Gloria. Yeah, so like as opposed to, I believe the original one's a little more about like being sexually risque. This one starts out singing about uh, Jesus not dying for her sins, and it, it feels like a little bit of um, a religious liberation from her end, which is kind of a cool reworking, and also a pretty ballsy thing to jump out with on live national TV when the president was just on the screen 10 minutes ago. So I thought it was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think it will surprise our thousands of listeners to know that this is immediately my favorite musical performance of the season. Um, and I am a continued proponent that Saturday Night Live is the 
is the cool show you stay up late to watch. So you don't want to see some old ass grandma out there scatting jazz tunes. You want to see something cool. You want to see Patty fucking Smith. Come on. They finally starting to get it together. Don't get me wrong. At other parts of the episode, they're going in the complete opposite direction. Gerald Ford has pre-tapes. Come on. And and I don't, I don't think it's a thing that, you know, maybe somebody in the backstage was like, well, maybe we should balance it out a little and have a little edgier musical act. Somebody could have had that thought. I don't know. Jeez, just color me relieved. I'm going to suggest something uh, that I don't think is too crazy on this one. I think Patty Smith was purposely booked for a show that the president was probably going to watch. I dig that. I dig that idea. That as makes well it as, even cooler. As it? well as some of the sketches tonight are there because the White House will be watching. There's a there's a couple now that you've you've mentioned it that we'll get to them obviously, but I I like that idea a lot and and uh, if she knew this was coming, that might help inform some of the choices made by the band as well. It was it was punk rock. It was cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed this as well. Um, fun segment. She gives a shout out to the uh, to CBGB, which even I know about. <laughs> this is a wild departure from the normal. Um, my only complaint, kind of, was it just doesn't look like they know how to film hard rock. <laughs> they don't. They don't know how to capture it yet. Yeah, the, the kinetic energy is a little too tricky for them because they've been mm-hmm. used to just watching Paul Simon, you know, drone on or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I like Paul Simon. <laughs> I do too, but not for not for this. <laughs> One thing that jumped out at me is, uh, my God, Patty Smith looks like Joey Ramone. Yeah. Now that you mention it, yeah, I can yeah. see it. And someone else on the internet thought because I had to check like were they related, and uh, no, but somebody else out there says they look like each other, and there's just two pictures up there. They clearly have the I, same hairdresser. Yeah, yeah. The musical uh, performance, this is uh, like in the first 20 minutes. This uh, this was a fast clip for her. So this beats Sadaka for you, does it, Matt? Oh, it's not even. This is a different ballpark. Sadaka is something that uh, while I, you know, enjoyed watching it, you know, I, li- I would listen to Patti Smith. But you would watch Neil Sadaka. <laughs> I'd watch Neil Sadaka. <laughs> Come on. And just a few, a few superlatives for this uh, for this performance. Entertainment Weekly lists this on the forty uh, on their list of forty-one best musical performances. They're not ranked, but they're uh, just a list. And uh, Rolling Stone put this as the twentieth best musical performance in SNL history up to that point. I don't have the date, but so this is a well appreciated. So press secretaries through history. Ron Nesson plays Catherine the Great's secretary, and he announces to the world that she was killed while riding her horse. She died in the saddle. But no other details are available. That was uh, the, the Catherine the Mushed line. Felt like, I don't know, like a history class in junior high trying to come up with a little sketch. Uh, it felt pretty flat for me, but also the delivery was fairly uncharismatic. And I like a good history joke, but I mean, this one was a little bit. This is a tale of two episodes for me uh, in many ways, because uh, as good as it gets with Patti Smith and Dan Aykroyd, uh, the rest of it is just really shitty for me. And this is one of those. Do you know the history on Catherine the Great's death? I don't think I do. The rumor was that she uh, was killed having sex with her horse. Which is uh-huh. I definitely didn't know that. No, okay. Um, in reality, she had a stroke while reading. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, a lot less humorous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but she was a, a hippophile, I think it's called, a lover of horses, and she was very a very sexual person. Political enemies spread that rumor, and two hundred years later, a few people in the Saturday Night Live audience got it. <laughs> I didn't. I, I had to look it up. Enemies. Jeez. Yeah. If we, if I go out first, you guys feel free to tell people I died fucking a horse. <laughs> Oh, no, no. You went out getting fucked by a horse, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to say you died. You had a stroke when you were reading, and then everyone will see it. <laughs> you had a stroke while reading about Catherine the Great getting fucked by a horse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and watching Ron Nesson. <laughs> the next bit is a, a lie detector. 
lie detector sketch. Um, so it's David and Julie Eisenhower, voiced by Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner. Uh, Julie has David hooked up to a polygraph um, where she's asking if he gave family information to Woodward and Bernstein, who had just released the book Nixon's, or just about to release the book, I think, A Nixon's Final Days. He answers questions, and anytime it's a, a tricky question about possibly leaking information to uh, to Woodward and Bernstein, the needles go crazy. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming this is Franken and Davis because this looks a lot like a Pong sketch. Oh, shit, I never thought that, but uh, now that you mention it, I, I really get that vibe, and I enjoyed it about as much. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it feels uh, like it's going for at least when these things are topical, you can get a chuckle from it. Um, but I would imagine even at the time, this was fairly meh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, they have 50 years removed or whatever it is now. It was just pretty felt fillery. Meh. Yeah, felt like filler. I do recommend the book, though, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've read All the President's Men. It's a good follow-up, although it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little mean-spirited, I think. And a little bit of trivia here. Gilda Radner is the first person to play a presidential child, like a, a president's kid in this episode. So that's one I think the White House was supposed to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that's a little jab at Ford for, for setting Tricky Dick free. Uh, the next one is also one I think the White House was supposed to see. Uh, John Belushi plays Lieutenant Colonel Scott Schumann, advertising recruitment for the new army. He's listening to rock music. His desk is covered in weed. Sorry, he's encouraging people to join the army and talks about how loose it is. He actually implies that the uh, army is sneaking weed into the country or sneaking drugs into the country. Belushi is not looking well here, and uh, yeah, this is just not a good sketch. This one definitely jumped into my mind when you uh, insinuated that they were doing sketches for the president to see. I had a couple chuckles at this one. In a, in a stronger show, maybe I wouldn't have found it so entertaining, <laughs> but mm. compared to some of the things that we had already seen, I, I got a bit of a laugh out of it. Uh, Belushi's delivery is probably selling half it. But the like the tagline at the end was was pretty cute, you know the the army a joint venture that wants to join you, mm. uh, and I don't know I thought he sold it pretty good. It, it wasn't the strongest script, but uh, it was definitely not the the most boring thing so far tonight. This gets a pass. I shouldn't say a pass from me, but I, I think it gets a little more mercy because I don't enjoy so many of these sketches on this particular episode. But when they uh, toss Belushi Belushi out to do this. Uh, it really doesn't seem so bad. I mean, I wasn't in stitches by any means, but it uh, it, it wasn't the worst fare we'll see tonight, in my opinion. Uh, I, I was kind of like the idea, like, join the army, do drugs and play with toys. You get to shoot rockets and lasers. Very G.I. Joe. Yeah. Weekend update, and Chevy's phone line is, I don't care if you go out with him, just don't touch him there. <laughs> and then Chevy says, I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. And we get a video clip of Ford saying, I'm Gerald Ford and you're not. I kind of enjoyed that one, to be perfectly honest. I really liked Chevy's phone joke. I thought that was one of the better ones. Uh, but I will continue to say that President Ford's presence on this episode is obnoxious and unnecessary. At least he tried a joke here. And I think the fact that Chevy then spun that into another joke about his mental health condition, I don't know if that would have been uh, cleared with the White House, but I thought that was was a little funny. Due to Howard Hughes, who had recently passed away due to his complicated tax structure, he was buried with three IRS agents. Jimmy Carter will be endorsed by his fraternal twin brother, Reuben Carter. (laughs) My favorite bit from the first bit is Democratic candidate, Henry Jackson disputes claims he is boring and he is seen here demonstrating his charisma by holding a cabbage. And there's a picture of Henry Jackson holding a cabbage. Nixon's writing a two volume bio. The first one, he tells everything. The second one, he denies it. Let's see. Lorraine Newman is with Francisco Franco's press secretary, Mr. Boyardee. And Boyardee notes that the deceased Franco's condition is stable and doesn't think he'll be changing any of his stances. We get another Ronald Reagan hair dye joke. And then we go to the commercial, which is a re-airing of Jerry Rubin's ad for the Berkeley Collection wallpaper from episode one. So how's the first half for, for you fellas? Had some pretty good laughs. The the Jimmy Carter joke got me, and I had a full-blown, uh, like, out loud by myself laugh at the, um, the demonstrating his charisma by holding a cabbage joke. Uh, but then they they do that segment 
with uh, Lorraine Newman and Nessum, and it felt like it hit a brick wall. It was finally generating some momentum, and then that just felt like a big old wet blanket. The the Jerry Rubin bit actually reminded me of one of my favorite Norm MacDonald jokes. So I think, I don't know if I was laughing more at the memory of that joke from a future Weekend Update or the joke itself. It's funny, uh, last time I, I said uh, on the last episode, I thought Weekend Update was kind of above average standard fare. And I guess uh, I'm feeling slightly the opposite. I thought this was, this was below average standard fare from Weekend Update. Certainly not the worst. I don't know. I know Weekend Update relies so exclusively on these topical jokes. So, so it's difficult for me to say it's just not good. But uh, I mean, I really don't think these age well. I'll say that. The second half is uh, Emily Latella talking about presidential erections. Now, if that wasn't put in for the White House's uh, benefit, I don't know what was. But uh, other than the cabbage and the Jimmy Carter, Reuben Carter bit, this didn't work for me, this one. You know, like that could have been scred. Done with Emily Latella. The way she says never mind, though, like Gilda Radner's delivery on that one line is pretty perfect. How many times can you can you do that joke, though? Yeah. And, well, they're they're pushing their limits They're They are testing that scientifically, it seems. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 closing in on the double digits, and it's only episode seventeen. So our next bit is a Gary Weiss film, and I learned something about Gary Weiss just the other day. Um, Gary Weiss was a cameraman at Altamont. <laughs> is that why this was so dark? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this was weird. So this is uh, this one's about uh, garbage men or sanitation engineers. They just they talk to different uh, different people in the in the garbage industry in New York. Uh, as uh, Bill Steele's version, uh, the original version of the song Garbage Plays, the Pete Seeger version went on to be the official anthem for Earth Day. Highlight for me in this one is the guy talking <laughs> random stories about finding bodies and body parts all over the place. Um, other guys are talking about the stuff they find. This is absolutely disgusting to watch uh, as far as what we're seeing on the screen. And Gary Weiss goes to a dump about six miles around. It's the largest dump in the world. And uh, he takes a look at some of the stuff they've uh, salvaged, including a five-month-old dog named Dumpy. Uh, this was not great. He's, he's, he's been great at times, and again, this is not it. I thought it was at least an improvement from uh, his previous two. His previous two, I thought, were really, really bottomed out for me. And I thought, you know, this wasn't my favorite, but I really liked the just the oddness of it, this weird slice of life, which is just what he's great at. And, yeah, the body part stuff was was strange just delivered so matter of factly i do i i think i like this a little more than you but it's certainly not my favorite of his but coming around after the last two weeks where i didn't like it at all yeah it was it was it was definitely dark and kind of uncomfortable um i did sort of enjoy the the real change of pace of it all and it, and it felt weirdly raw and real and and maybe that's part of uh, SNL not quite knowing where it's at or what it's doing. I, I will say um, the garbage dump itself was probably only the second least charismatic thing on this whole episode. So I'll give it points for that. Uh, <laughs> it had more personality than Nessum. So, and, and yeah, that guy talking about the body parts was, it was just a very odd moment for a, a comedy show. That was a slice of life, dark comedy. Um, so our next bit here is Autumn Fizz. It's a feminine washing product. This was written by Gilda Radner and Alan Zweibel. And it's just a, a carbonated uh, ladies washing product. <laughs> <laughs> Chevy sits on the bed for no reason at all. Uh, this wasn't great. I, I was kind of unimpressed with it. Pretty flash, I thought, as well. It's, I mean, it's just the really the one joke and uh, performed capably. But yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it wasn't a lot to it for me, I guess. I actually got a pretty good laugh out of this one myself. Yeah. Um, it, it went a little long for, for the joke that it is. The, there was absolutely no reason for Chevy Chase to be in the scene. It was just like he wanted an excuse to wear a, a tuxedo and, and look sharp. But uh, I don't know, Gilda Radner's delivery really sold me. And when, when she popped that little burp, I, I, I had a good chuckle. It's uh. low brow. Nothing classy about this at all. But I mean, maybe again, relative to what we've been seeing with some of the, the flatter segments, this one at least had some pop to it. <laughs> so our next bit is The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. Dan Aykroyd does one of my favorite impressions of his. It's Tom Snyder, and he's interviewing Ron Nesson. 
Nesson is flat, but I love watching Aykroyd Snyder. This thing's about taxis in Washington, D.C., having no meters and uh, ignoring people who ask bad questions. It ends with Garrett Morris coming in dressed as Mr. Peanut, who is Jimmy Carter's campaign manager. This sketch to me is all about Aykroyd's Tom Snyder. Yeah, it was definitely a vehicle for him. And I, uh, I, pre- I, my familiarity with Tom Snyder, I, I learned who he was only via his, uh, the Late Late Show with Tom Snyder, which at the time was just, just one of the strangest late night shows as for, you know, you're a teenager and you're, you're watching all these clowns and then you put on Tom Snyder and he's laughing, but you're not sure why. And yeah, it's just a bizarre show. Anyway. Kind of unrelated, um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed. I, I learned to like Tom Snyder there, and I loved seeing Dan Aykroyd here. I every, everything else was really inconsequential for me. Yeah, this is definitely the 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 driving force was was the imitation, and and it's a bit removed for me. I I'm like super mildly familiar with Snyder from the the late late show. Is impressions bang on, but he's just doing so much work trying to carry Nesson and. It's it's a little difficult to watch on that. And plus, I think, yeah, there's a point where um, uh, he, Ron Nesson doubles back and starts on the making fun of Gerald Ford being a, a goon and talking about how they have milk and cookies and, and, mm. and camp out and how they're like children. And it's just like, you already, you know, beat that horse to death early on in the show. Do we really got to go back to this now? Mm. Oh, they'll go back. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing, and I don't, and again, not to go off on a tangent, but uh, I don't know if you remember the Late Late Show with Tom Snyder. It was always zoomed in, just unusually close on his like shoulders and head, uh, mm-hmm. the camera angle. And he always he would tell these odd jokes that didn't even seem to have punchlines, and then he'd <laughs> start cracking up and showing his giant teeth and waiting for his for his off camera producer to start chuckling along with him. It's a really interesting show. Our next bit is the home movie, and this one is uh, from David Messar, I believe, Mazar, and it stars Peter Dupre, Doug Brooks, Jeff Heath, and David Valardocia, and it's a uh, a quartet of men randomly meet up in a public bathroom and, and sing medieval choral music while peeing at urinals. I enjoyed this. How bizarre. Well, it didn't work for me. It didn't really seem that funny to me. It felt a little quirky, like it had, uh, I don't know, high school drama sort of vibes for me as far as like people shooting home movies in the 70s to send into a brand new variety show at the time i i could see this being uh more entertaining than how it hits now uh with what we're used to to getting in our entertainment yeah it was fine it didn't overstay its welcome i, I think it's really cool that it, even though i didn't enjoy this one i think it's really cool that they do this i like when it uh, when the show kind of lets itself get a little weird with the Gary Weiss odd films and now these home movies and just people like Andy Kaufman showing up and just doing a bit like they kind of got away from all of that. But uh, I think it was a valuable early part of the show. Yeah, it definitely gave it more of a live, interesting, like art project feel as opposed to just a, a hyper polished, stylized cameo spot fest. Like it turns into at some points later on. And the director, David Massar, Masser, uh, apologize on the pronunciation there, went on to direct some uh, episodes of Unsolved Mysteries and was a creative force behind the reality show called Untold Stories of the ER, but I couldn't find too much else. I remember that show. That was an intense show. Untold Stories of the ER? Yeah. Yeah. I remember if it's the one I remember on TLC. I think that's where it was, yeah. So the next bit is a press secretary throughout history. Uh, Oedipus Rex is press secretary. Announces that the queen mother is now the queen wife. Uh, hard pass for me. I got a mild chuckle just because I was in on the, the nerd <laughs> history joke, I guess. But it didn't need to be there. Our next sketch is called Supreme Court Spot Check. Uh, it starts with Chevy Chase and Jane Curtin in bed. And they're uh, doing their uh, couplely duties. The Supreme Court barges in to make sure they aren't doing anything illegal. And the Supreme Court is played by John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Garrett Morris, Alan Zweibel, Al Franken, Tom Davis, Michael O'Donohue, Neil Levy, and Tom Schiller. They tell the couple they can start uh, can start having sex, but they demand that she loses the high heels. And they watch and critique if it's legal or not. They see some unlawful fondling. 
The justices then get awkward when Jane asks why there's no women on the court. Belushi says, there are women, there's just none here. And then they march out chanting, we are the Supreme Court. I wrote that this was really smart, not particularly funny, and still very much relevant. I guess I'd be inclined to agree with that. Yeah, this this one felt like uh, a premise, the great premise that everyone got excited about, and then they forgot to actually write it. And then on the night of the show, they needed just another skit and threw this one in and it wasn't ready. Like this felt like it needed to go back in the oven for a little while. I, I thought the idea was was good, but it was just there was no structure to it. And it was kind of all over the road. Like they even seemed a little unsure and uncomfortable about who was supposed to be doing what at the time. Uh, I did have a mild chuckle when they, they told uh, Jane Curtin to lose the high heels and then Chevy pulled out a pair as well. That was unexpected. So it got a little bit of a giggle out of me. But yeah, this just felt like structurally kind of frustrating. Like like, mm. like you can see the good idea behind it, but the they, they rushed it out too soon or whatever. It's not the first time I've said this, but it doesn't, you know, it's a comedy show. Write some jokes. You, you got a good sketch. You got a good premise here. Like Keith, you already said, it's, you know, it's, it's a clever little setup. Write some fucking jokes for it. You're comedians. Yeah, uh-huh. it, it feels like they're just, they're trying to work through the premise as opposed to actually having like, like, like the, you bring someone in to punch up your scripts and, and these are the people that you would bring in to punch up a movie script. How come they can't punch up their own skits? And, and the, the ending too, it feels like another one of those skits that they just didn't know how to end it. So they just start singing, we are the Supreme Court as they walk off and it just uh-huh. takes too long for them to all leave. Dreadful. Uh, structurally, this one's the most, maybe the most disappointing skit of the evening for me, just because like there's such a strong premise behind it, but it's it's the execution's just so poor. So this sketch also winds up on the top fifty sketches of all time. Um, what, the Supreme Court one. Yeah. What? Yeah, Rolling Stone puts it as number fifty on their top fifty. That what a rag! What a rag! <laughs> <laughs> Keep rolling, you shitty stone. Press secretaries throughout history. John Quincy Ross wants it to be known that Thomas Jefferson doesn't have slaves. There's 6,000 close relatives who enjoy working under the blazing sun. And Jefferson's purchase of, the Louis- of Louisiana was a smart purchase because it would uh, double the United States size and would eventually be the home of the Dinosaur Women's Golf Classic held in Arizona. Didn't like it. Flat delivery. Not particularly funny. Yeah, I don't know if my reaction was just purely out of surprise that this this guy would make this joke, but it's the most alive I felt watching him all night. That <laughs> being said, it still wasn't good. Yeah, I didn't like it either. I, I really have nothing to contribute uh, as far as uh, commentary goes. I just think these are ill-advised and they're not funny. Dinah Shore is a name to me that as soon as I hear it, I think 70s joke. <laughs> Or like, you know, Golden Girls or something. It's one of these names like Barbara Mandrell, where it's like, <laughs> I only know it exists because of jokes from shows like Golden Girls, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we come to um, 28-year-old comedian known as Bill Crystal. Um, of course, he goes on to be known as Billy. He originally went to college on a baseball scholarship, but switched to acting and filmmaking. Did some comedy troupe things and then started doing solo work at some different uh, New York comedy clubs. He was becoming a name for himself for his impressions and character pieces. And if you'll remember from episode one, Crystal was cut after the dress rehearsal. So he does a bit about an old jazz musician that he knew when he was a kid. And he talks about a reunion that the pair had. This is definitely a character piece. Kind of normally better found in like an arty open mic or a one person show. He keeps repeating, can you dig it? I knew that you could. Billy Crystal is a very funny man, but this sketch does not work here at all. It is too slow. I'm a big fan of Billy Crystal, but this is among the least funniest things I'd ever seen. Not that it's bad necessarily, but it just sticks out like a like like an unfunny thumb. I I, I don't like it at all. When he was uh, announced, when he was coming onto the stage, I was excited. I, I, I didn't know he was coming out with this episode. Uh, I knew, of course, because uh, I'm familiar with that book, Live from New York, about his uh, his getting cut story, and it uh, didn't go over well uh, with him, if I remember correctly. Uh, so yeah, when he's he comes out, and I'm like, oh wow, Billy Crystal, this is going to be good. I'm excited. He's funny. And yeah, and then he did that, and I uh, it wasn't for me. I, I, 
what, what I found myself thinking during it is sort of what I've already mentioned is that I, I appreciate that the show does these bits at all. Not to say that I enjoy this one though. I was quite disappointed when this ended. Yeah, I would, uh, I'd have to echo your sentiments, fellas. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of Billy Crystal, but I apparently do not care for Bill Crystal. Uh, when he came out and uh, he, he cracked a quick joke at the top while he was doing his setup for what would turn into the character bit. And even like the, the joke he, he kind of, I don't know, flubbed or structurally wasn't quite there. Uh, but there was a joke in there to be, you know, worked on, but then, yeah, he just moves into this thing that you would expect to see in an open mic night or, or like maybe a part of a one man show in like a fringe festival. And it, there was some charisma to it, but yeah, it wasn't overly engaging or entertaining. And it certainly didn't like, I was expecting a stand up set and it did not deliver that in any way, shape or form. Yeah, like I could not say that this was a bad performance, but it does not fit on this show. And it kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Like it has the the goodwill to be interesting to a degree. And like like you were saying, Matt, how like the they they try all these different things and and they're not too worried about being a little weird. So I can appreciate that at least in it, but it's all still just like what yeah, I mean, I I, I, st- I would rather them try and fail than not try. I agree with you there. Our next bit is called Misconception. Ron Nesson introduces this uh, bit, which is a show that refutes misconceptions that have entered our own language. So the uh, Supreme Court enters as a bunch of cooks um, working on a broth. Belushi tastes it and says it's the best broth he's ever tasted, disproving the old bit that too many cooks boil the broth. Next week, they'll be back to prove that a cat does not have more than one life. This one, I loved all the work that went into a joke that was maybe 10 seconds long. I did laugh at this. I liked Belushi's performance. I loved all the the chefs there. I thought this was actually, by this point, Nesson wasn't as nervous and was almost comfortable here. Definitely on uh, the more positive side of the episode for me as well. And I, I don't know if you noticed, but... You were right about Dan Aykroyd before. I forget which one of you said it, but he's starting to feel it. He's on and, you know, his facial expressions in this uh, really helped sell it for me as well. He's, he's coming into his own for sure. Yeah, he definitely stuck out in the crowd, even though like nothing specific is happening to do it. Your, your eye just drifts towards him as he's like putting on this over-exaggerated French uh, chef sort of thing. And and yeah, it was like you said, he's stupid as hell, but I chuckled heartily. And like after Belushi tastes it and does his bad French impression and just keeps saying, bourgeois, bourgeois, it's, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. And yeah, Nesson's line to close it out, we'll see it next week where we prove you know that a cat does indeed only have one life or whatever that was probably the funniest he manages to be in the whole episode so yeah he's getting into a groove finally with his one joke uh yeah what i noticed Ackroyd was just going no 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 and it's it's so cacophonous like there's just the energy is there you know I love the fact that for this puny sketch, though, they had to run backstage, get out of their Supreme Court clothes. Some of them out of their wigs and their fake mustaches and glasses, put on chef's costumes. They had to build a kitchen set and the bubbling soup. And this, the whole thing was maybe seven seconds long. It was like so short. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah. I like the, I really the big the big hefty pause Belushi takes right after he sips it. Like yeah. he just takes that one moment and you're like, you're kind of sucked in at that point. You know, what's <laughs> gonna happen? There's like this moment of tension, even though it's the dumbest, shortest little thing that they put a ton of work into, like you said. They they sell the yeah. shit out of it. Brilliant in its simplicity. Yeah. So then we go to uh, Patty Smith again, and the band does My Generation, the old Who song. I certainly, I don't like this as much as the original, but it's really well done. Smith is a tremendous performer, really can't take my eyes off her. Way ahead of her time, um, and the influence is obvious on so many people that came after her. She says, God damn, for the first time on the TV show. It was never cut. And then the band breaks their stuff, not as uh, cool as the Who when they do it. But this was really great. The audience absolutely loved it this is that much wanted high energy performance i I assumed matt was waiting for absolutely and i preferred this one much more than the first performance which i also enjoyed but you know if i have to pick one this is my favorite song 
uh, from a musical performer so far in season one. I was thinking as soon as I, because I, I didn't, uh, I knew she was on this episode. I didn't know what she was going to do. I figured Gloria was the easy first bit, but I, I didn't expect my generation uh, to come at the end. But I mean, it makes sense. It was a big live hit for her, even though on record, she says, I don't need your fucking shit. Hope I die because of it. Clean it up for television, even though you get a GD out there. I loved it. This this is what I what I wanted, what I've been waiting for. I think this is what it should be more about. This one didn't hit as hard for me as the first performance, to be perfectly honest. The the middle third of the song or whatever, Patty Smith's hands it off and like uh her guitarist takes over the lead vocals and and the bassist is jumping in and she's just kind of like floating there in the middle they just don't have the charisma she does and i found it fell a little flat when she let the 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 fellas step up and and that kind of lost a little bit of it for me to be perfectly honest that's when she's just kind of standing there staring blankly at her guitarist, isn't it? She she gave him a bit of a look, and then she seemed to glare at the bass player for a bit. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't tell if she was just watching him riff and into it, or mm-hmm. if she was a little... Because like, the guitar player, when he stepped in to sing, missed his first couple lines. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's punk rock. Yeah, it's a live performance. But it felt kind of like sloppy, not in the like messy punk rock woo kind of way, but in kind of the like maybe they had one too many beers in between performances kind of way. And I don't know, there's just something felt a little off about this one for me, to be honest, because they they smashed Gloria so hard. This one felt a little janky. Yeah, of the two, I prefer Gloria, I think. But uh, neither of these were bad performances by any means. Holy jumpins, they were they were both great. So finally, we're at the end. Ron Nesson comes out and announces that both Tony Basil and the Muppets couldn't uh, make it due to technical difficulties. Yay on no Muppets, boo on no Tony Basil. Nesson says he was nervous. He, he was glad he could make the show and do it and had the opportunity. And then they do the goodbyes. And I noticed, I'm starting to notice that Dan Aykroyd is always awkward at the goodbyes. In this case, he comes up with a bunch of papers under his arm. They have some time to kill and uh, they count down. Ackroyd congratulates Garrett Morris on a nice shirt, and then he he and uh, Morris leave the stage almost immediately. This was the end of the show. Uh, how did you feel about no Tony Basil and no Muppets? I mean, fuck the Muppets. Come on. The best thing Scred ever did was Emily Latella. So, Mark, you dodged a bullet there with no Muppets. Apparently, yeah. Like I grew up loving the Muppets, but I'm not super familiar with all their work on uh, early SNL. Um, but from what I've listened to the other episodes of the podcast, it's not been going well thus far. It is none of the charm of what you expect from the Muppets. It's just, uh, it's don't don't bother. Okay, right. This is them still still figuring out where where they're at and what they're doing too. For sure, Scred <laughs> has won me over a little bit, but. Uh... But yeah, the, the goodbyes were definitely awkward. And like when, when Dan Aykroyd comes in, he's like standing full on with his back to the camera for a good couple seconds, too. And like Chevy almost like reaches in to grab him to pull him in. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, the, the fact that they had a call out that they had a full minute left in the show proceeded to sandbag and awkwardly trying to run out the clock. It, it felt like they, they were kind of struggling to get through this one, mm-hmm. you know? Maybe maybe a couple of the couple of the skits that they busted out they might not have wanted to use just yet. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what was up there. I'd say a sketch probably ran long and so long that they couldn't use Tony Basil or the Muppets. Okay. So let's get into the epilogue for this one. So the fallout for this, uh, some of the White House staff were absolutely pissed at Nesson. Although both Ford and his wife said they found some of it funny. Nesson really got criticized all around for doing this not so much for his performance but for actually taking some of the dignity out of the white house one particular person that was pissed was gerald ford's son jack who said that nesson was out there just trying to steal president ford's thunder and there were two parties afterwards one for the executives and one for the cast kudos to ron nesson he went to the cast party at paul simon's house and actually enjoyed some weed with the cast nesson stayed in the white house until november of 76 He's gone on to write a lot of books and do a lot of uh, speaking and community involvement. One of the things he does is he reads audiobooks for visually impaired people. And his book, Making the News, Taking the News, from NBC to the Ford White House, was one of his uh, more popular ones. He was a member of the Peabody Award jury for many years. And at 87 years old, he's still out there. He's uh, I, I saw some articles from a few years ago, looked healthy, looked happy, and was still somewhat busy. 
musical guest. This is the only time uh, Patty Smith's uh, band appears, though Smith comes back in a film a film segment later. But yeah, this is it for for Patty Smith's band, and uh, I think Patty Smith actually retired from full time music about three or four years after this. Billy Crystal was really only about a few weeks away from hitting real stardom through appearances on talk shows and stuff. He'll be a member of the cast of the sitcom Soap, and of course, Crystal goes on to both host and join the cast of the show later. So we're not going to see. Nesson, and we're not going to see the Patty Smith group again, and we will see Billy Crystal again. So, does that jive for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I knew Crystal was coming back, of course. Nesson, goodbye forever. It's just not what you should be doing. It's kind of cool that he went to the uh, cast party and smoked a little weed. Although, are you really hanging with the cast if you're not doing lines with Belushi and tying one off with Newman? 1970s Republican smoking weed. That's 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 a departure. Yes, quite. Sakatui. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh it almost feels like like an acid and a base canceling each other out, Nessim and Patty Smith. Um yeah, not not surprised he doesn't return. He he seems like a swell fellow, and it sounds like he was yeah. incredibly accomplished in, in other areas. And and the fact that, you know, he was a, a war correspondent who was injured and all that sort of stuff. He's just lacking in the entertainment department. And, you know, you got to appreciate that he took a swing. But uh, no surprises to see, like, from hindsight, Billy Crystal coming back. Although uh, from from his just performance tonight, maybe I, I would have been surprised to find out he was returning. That he ever worked again. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and one other bit that uh, sort of Nesson was aware of the sketches he was in, but he wasn't overly aware of the things he wasn't involved in and either throughout the episode or as the episode was getting very close or shortly after seeing it he sort of realized that these weren't a bunch of fun kids taking light jabs at the president that some of this stuff was truly mean-spirited um and he sort of regretted not having more input or stopping a few things, but he, he thoroughly enjoyed doing the show. So let's get into rating. Let's rate the music. So uh, Patty Smith Group, for me, it's the first bit of real young generation music to show up on SNL. Can't help but watch it, though, knowing that the White House staffers were probably tuned in and, you know, wondering, you know, where's Perry Como? But I really liked this. It's a great contrast to what we've seen so far. And I wrote here, I predict this matches the vibe Matt has been waiting for. Yeah, best musical guest of the season for me, hands down. Uh, there's no, there's nobody that I even listen. I know Paul Simon is a rock and well, I don't want to see rock and roll even. Uh, I know Paul Simon is a musical star, uh, but he still puts me to sleep. And I hated Scat and Grandma, and everything has just been just so safe. Uh, you you already said it. This is what I've been waiting for. And thank God they finally gave it to me. Yeah, I've honestly never been a big fan of the musical segments in SNL. I've always found it kind of uh, jarring and too much of an attempt to be a variety show thing, personally. But that being said, I think Patti Smith is a force and rocked the shit out of it. And um, it was definitely like juxtaposed to the rest of the uh, content of the episode and the host and add in the fact that, you know, Gerald Ford's actually watching this. I thought that was fantastic. And yeah, it was good. Okay, now rating the host. Considering who he is and what he did, I thought by the end of it he was fairly comfortable. They did lean super heavy on the political stuff here, but that shouldn't be a surprise. Nesson turned out to be the template for this sort of person to appear on the show, and he was criticized for it. But look where we're at today, and every politico wants the opportunity to do this. But I thought Nesson seemed like a good guy who was a good sport, who enjoyed himself and made some good choices in the sketches that he was involved in. However, whether he should have been asked in the first place, I don't know. But considering they asked him, considering he said yes, and considering he did it, you know, it was what it was. Just terrible. He was so bad. He shouldn't be there. Good for him for getting a rush out of it, whether he, you know, would go on to regret it or not. You go on late night live television, you fuck around and find out, I guess. I can't justify it. I I don't, there was nothing funny about him. There was nothing cool about it. It it was just wrong. 
I hate that they do this. And of course, they'll continue to do it. And, and I think they start to do it eventually to just grab headlines. And, you know, it's, it's like promotion for the show. I get it. You got something to sell. But I mean, you're a comedy show. Why don't you sell it by being funny and writing jokes? Good for him for getting through it and shame on them for doing it. There are moments where it does almost feel like the joke is at his expense in the overall of the episode and uh yeah yeah like like matt railing against all the the history of these these political dead weights that they have to drag through the mud of of getting through an entertainment show it's it's it sets a bad precedent here and uh yeah the world would be a better place if this didn't happen so uh what was your worst bit of the night I think Matt, you have quite a mind to uh, tr- to uh, dig through here. Anything the host touched is the worst segment of the night for me. But I will take the press secretaries throughout history as my fucking biggest waste of time. I'm going with the Supreme Court one. Uh, maybe I adjusted my expectations and let Nesson off uh, the hook a little bit. And I was expecting more from them. And, and the premise right out of the gate intrigued me. And the execution was just so piss poor. I think I was just disappointed with it so much because it could have been so better, so much better. So I think that's got to be my, my the, the part that made me feel the crappiest watching this episode. I took a different tack on this one. Um, I, I, it was hard to pick from Nesson's stuff. But I actually went with Billy Crystal because I know what Billy Crystal is capable of and what was what he was capable of. And uh, it's not his performance, but this is so wrong for the show. And 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 as a comic, I thought Crystal should have known that this was almost a, a dramatic monologue. I, I had to go with this. Um, my expectations for Nesson weren't too high. And to be honest, he was balanced out at times by other members of the cast. So what's your best for the night? Basimatic. It's a classic for a reason. Uh, it stands the test of time. I laughed again today when I watched it. You used the whole bass. <laughs> I think I got to go with the French chefs. Uh, <laughs> it was just so stupid. It's so short. Bassomatic was fantastic. And, and it was a good length for this skit and, and a classic. But there was something about how just, just quick, hard, tiny, dumb. That's That was the best laugh for me. I was, I was grinning ear to ear. Mine, uh, mine was Bassomatic, um, with an honorable mention to uh, to Tom Snyder. But I, I, you got no choice. I had to go with Bassomatic. Star of the night, Dan Aykroyd. Come on, I couldn't take my eyes off him. He was hilarious in everything he was in. Really, other than Patty Smith, just carried the episode for me. I want to give it to uh, the garbage guy talking about the body parts, but I think Dan Aykroyd deserves it, so he gets it too. A three-way sweep here. It's absolutely Aykroyd. Bassomatic, Tom Snyder, and the the French. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, this Ackroyd kid's uh, he's going places. <laughs> um, and overall, um, so for a show that has such lauded high points like Bassomatic, uh, though I didn't like it, the Supreme Court bid as a popular one, and Patty Smith, the show does not equal the sum of its parts. For the most part, this episode was just not funny. The cast was good in their performances, and it was great. Even the writers were in on this one, which, as everyone knows, I like. But there were just too many things that were absolutely forgettable or just plain old bad. Billy Crystal didn't work for me. The Oval Office was too long. Update kind of sucked. Gary Weiss's home movie was okay. Bassomatic was great. Um, Even Fluckers, which was good, probably didn't hit on all cylinders the way it could. And I don't know, part of... Like I like and dislike the notion of putting things in the episode just because they knew the White House would be watching. I, I think the fact that some of these pieces are, are so well-remembered, these individual pieces, and yet the episode is almost never mentioned, is kind of a good indication of the full episode. Um, I went back and forth on this one, but I finally went with a 6 out of 10. I had mentioned earlier that this is very much a tale of two episodes for me, it's not the, probably not even the first time I've said that. I don't know. We, we call the show S in Hell because I, uh, as we explained in the very first episode, as our thousands of fans will remember, there's so many layers and, and different levels and depths of this to go through. S and L will has such such a, a more elaborate scaling of suffering than Dante's Inferno ever could have imagined. I give this a five 
because I don't, because it's really hard for me because some of it is awesome and some of it is really just shit zero. So I, I got to split the difference. I got to go in the middle and say a five. But, you know, it pains me to give a five to an episode with, with such good shit in it. You got to take it as a whole. Yeah, there's a, a lot of peaks and valleys in this one for sure. And some very, very strange detours between laughing out loud to being bored to tears to being just straight up confused and mildly uncomfortable. Uh, I went through a gamut of emotions, so I'll give it that for sure. I'd probably land at, I'd say, about a six as well. And that gives us our average of 5.6 for the episode. And the Internet Movie Database gave it a 7.1, which um, is exactly, again, our exchange rate, Matt, of 1.5 away. I love it. (laughs) That's the good news. The bad news is they tied this with Anthony Perkins and Elliot Gould. They're so wrong on this. Maybe they just watched, like, Bassomatic and... Is that Jill Clayburg episode rated higher? Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah, (laughs) that makes this the 15th highest rated episode of the season. But again, Patti Smith makes, she makes a few lists for being the best musical performance. And Bassomatic is 14 on the best sketches of all time. And the Supreme Court spot check is 50 on the top 50. So there is memorable stuff here. I suppose that the memorable stuff's so memorable and the forgettable stuff is so forgettable. It ends yeah. up being remembered much more fondly than it deserves for the overall. I don't think we've seen an episode yet with so many peaks and valleys, I think is a good way to put this one. So our next episode, will be back. Episode 18 featuring Raquel Welch, the returning Phoebe Snow and John Sebastian. Any of them names uh, jump out at you, Matt? Oh, Raquel Welch. Hello. <laughs> actually i liked at the very end of this episode when they announced raquel welch uh nesson actually had a quick one-liner himself he's like oh now you tell me she's here next week you know yeah. see like he finally settled into his element at the end his funniest bit was like the last three seconds of the show and it was an ad lib yeah <laughs> so mark i want to thank you so much for coming tonight. This was great. I really uh, appreciated your thoughts and uh, bringing a fresh perspective to SNL for us. Ah, oh, thanks for having me, guys. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And hopefully, we can uh, bribe you to come back sometime. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind the odd trip to hell. We'll be back in about a week with episode eighteen. But until then. We'll be using the whole bass as we fire up the color teeny. Sit back, relax, and watch the pictures now as they fly through the air here in SN Hell.